This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by Gates Wildlife Control and the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of January 27th, 2014, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 117 of Defender Radio. It may be warm and sunny on the West Coast, but throughout much of Canada and the United States, it's howling cold. So we're taking this opportunity to make a bad pun and bring you an episode exploring our relationships with coyotes. We have interviews with some great experts this week, including Phil Carter of Animal Protection of New Mexico, Leslie Sampson of Coyote Watch Canada, and Professor Sarah Waller from the University of Montana. We'll also be presenting a new segment of Wild in the City with Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. But first, it's time for an update on our recent trip to Cornwall, Ontario. Defender Radio News. It was minus 32 degrees Celsius without the wind, but that didn't stop APFA staff and Coyote Watch Canada from investigating and celebrating coyotes in Cornwall. We spent a week in the eastern Ontario community, checking out local farm properties, suburban developments, and meeting with city staff to better understand the coyotes and other wildlife of the area. We had a great time, meeting the wonderful people who call the city home, and recognizing the healthy, diverse population in the ecosystems in and around the urban center. We met farmers who were using simple and effective solutions to keep predatory animals away from their livestock and livelihoods without lethal means. We met dedicated homeowners who were keeping an eye on their own actions to prevent conflict in suburban developments. And we had an outstanding chat with city staff who are dedicated to progressive, forward-thinking solutions for coexisting with wildlife. Our week peaked at a public meeting where well over 50 residents came out to hear more about the coexistence models offered by CWC and APFA. The audience asked valuable questions that will help them, their families, and their city continue being champions of coexistence. If you'd like to learn more about our trip, visit FurBearDefenders.com, where you can find videos, blogs, and photos of our time in Cornwall. You can also find out how a coexistence solution can work in your community. Defender Radio News Unfortunately, commercial killing contests on coyotes and other fur-bearing animals are a notorious method of predator control. In New Mexico, they've been ramping up and getting into the media. Animal Protection of New Mexico is one of the groups fighting vigorously against the contests, providing education and strategic assistance to the public who are hoping for an end to the disturbing contests. Joining us now to share more on this subject is Animal Protection of New Mexico's Phil Carter. Can you explain a bit about the geography and ecosystems of New Mexico for those who aren't familiar with it? Uh, New Mexico is um, kind of the southern extent of the uh, Rocky Mountains, so uh, we've basically uh, got, um, you know, a, a little bit of the uh, Rocky Mountains uh, come, going through the central part of the state, um, down into Mexico. Um, a lot of desert, the, the southern half of the state is the Chihuahuan Desert, so um, pretty desolate in spots. Um, we also have a lot of plains on the eastern side of the state, so it's a pretty big mix of some, you know, low desert and very high mountains. Wildlife-wise, um, you know, we, our big carnivores include uh, mountain lion, uh, black bear. Um, we have a small population of uh, Mexican gray wolves that were introdu- uh, reintroduced by the U.S. government in um, 1998. They live in the southwest uh, corner of the state. 
um, and uh, coyotes, of course, as well as your other kind of typical Western wildlife. What are the attitudes like toward wildlife in New Mexico? Well, um, you know, we certainly kind of have a lot of the Old West culture that still lingers. I mean, in fact, our culture goes even further back to the Spanish colonial era from like the 1600s, where there was a lot of agricultural interests between sheep uh, ranching and cattle ranching that I think has kind of come down through the ages and forms a lot of our, our wildlife policy today. Um, while, you know, we could do a lot better as far as scientific management of wildlife here in New Mexico, uh, we have made progress in the latter half of the, the 20th century and the, uh, the first years of the 21st century through implementing like uh, hunting quotas, making sure we stay within reasonable limits of hunting of certain species, including uh, mountain lion, uh, bobcat, and uh, uh, bear. And uh, also we have other uh, protections on uh, some wild species as well, including um, uh, bighorn sheep, elk, uh, white-tailed deer. So I, I would say we're, we're kind of a, a moderate level between the two extremes you mentioned of, of purely scientific management versus kind of more uh, agricultural-based, uh, you know, carnivore extermination. What is the background on these coyote or predator killing contests? Well, on um, the coyote killing contest issue, I mean, you know, people have been killing coyotes here in New Mexico for hundreds of years. Uh, coyotes are not protected by state uh, law, so there's no real penalties or, or even regulation on the killing of a coyote. You can shoot a coyote or trap one without a license and not report it, which is perfectly legal. However, the whole issue of the coyote killing contests and other animal killing contests is really an exploitation of these these lack of protections for coyotes and other species, including prairie dogs, and turning it into basically a, a contest, a competition that uh, celebrates the act of killing, and it actually, in, in many cases, financially incentivizes it. Basically, organizing people to go out with high-powered rifles and other uh, electronic doodads to attract coyotes and then uh, kill as many as possible as part of a contest issue. And so um, New Mexico in recent years has really kind of become on the forefront of this whole debate of is this acceptable to uh, celebrate killing in this way based on a few very prominent um, coyote killing contests that have been organized by a uh, a few businesses, a gun shop in particular in Los Lunas, New Mexico, which is a little satellite community of Albuquerque down here. They've held numerous uh, killing contests, both targeting coyotes and prairie dogs, and uh, have offered rewards of rifles or other cash prizes to whoever comes back with the most coyote pelts or um, prairie dog uh, skins. And so you know, from our standpoint and from the standpoint of uh, many, many New Mexicans, the majority, I would, I would say, this is really unacceptable. We cannot allow such a uh, wanton dis uh, celebration of death in our society. It's, uh, it's a public safety risk. It's a profound lack of respect for life. And it's also uh, a, a horrible example to set uh, for our children that basically in New Mexico life is cheap. In Canada, we often hear from the agricultural folks and the hunting and trapping lobby, pushing the general fear that's unwarranted for coyotes. What do you think has led to the, not acceptance, but lack of challenge of these contests in New Mexico? We 
certainly hear the same arguments from the agricultural community, the ranchers um, down here in New Mexico as well. But we also have had some very prominent uh, voices opposing these sort of uh, thrill-killing contests, including our state lands commissioner um, and including um, our attorney general and other uh, members of our, our state uh, government who have really kind of taken a stand and said, no, this is unacceptable. For instance, uh, you know, every time a contest has come about, our state lands commissioner says that participants of these sort of contests are not welcome on, uh, you know, state-owned lands here in New Mexico. And so I, I think just through all of the, the attention that this has really gotten in the, in the past couple of years, that people are really taking a, a hard look at it. And, in fact, my organization, uh, Animal Protection of New Mexico, and our uh, legislative wing, Animal Protection Voters, brought a bill uh, at the 2013 state legislative session to ban these uh, contests uh, uh, for killing coyotes. Um, made it all the way to the house, uh, floor of the House of Representatives, where it was narrowly defeated. And we had every uh, intention to bring it back uh, uh, during the next uh, long legislative session in uh, 2015, because we've got serious momentum. People really think, uh, realizing that this is just not a right activity to uh, associate ourselves with, and the, you know the increasing uh, scrutiny of New Mexico on the uh, national and international stage as the killing contest state. Is there much that the average citizen can do to affect change on this matter? Certainly the average citizen can talk to their elected rep uh, legislators and say that, you know, at least here in New Mexico, uh, you know, they can talk to their representative and say, hey, I know you had a chance to vote on this. Either I approve of what you did or I don't approve of what you did. And we are really taking this seriously and want to see real action on this when a bill comes up again. Other things, uh, you know, we encourage people to do is talk to the media, write letters, um, call into radio stations, whatever, and say, you know, this is a, an important issue facing our state, uh, both from an eco at an ecosystem level of just indiscriminate killing of important animals without any apparent regulation or or management of it. It's a public safety risk. We don't like having people uh, fan out across our state uh, to areas unknown without any announcement or anything and shooting off, you know, rifles that'll go hundreds uh, or thousands of yards. Um, and uh, we don't like this. It just cuts the message it sends to both our society and to our children in particular. So those two actions are really important. We encourage people to do so. We also encourage, uh, you know, the people who may uh, have a stake in this, including, um, you know, homeowners, if they have, you know, coyotes around, and also agricultural producers, ranchers, that it doesn't have to be this way. You don't have to indiscriminately kill when there are, you know, simple animal husbandry techniques as well as other defenses that you can do to essentially neutralize the risk, uh, the minimal risk of predation by coyotes and other native carnivores. Um, our uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture has put out study after study showing of just what a tiny fraction of all livestock losses are actually due to native carnivores. I mean, it pales in comparison percentage-wise to deaths from exposure, um, starvation, lightning strikes, or even feral dogs far outstrip um, the mortalities on livestock. And so uh, further education in this regard, as well as 
um, the ecological benefits of coyotes are, are what we really strive to uh, impress on our society in coordination with other organizations. At what point will you declare a victory in New Mexico? Well, we've decided because of uh, unfortunate uh, lack of concern by our state game and fish department, uh, who, you know, uh, tends to, to take some, some fairly uh, what we would call regressive stances uh, oftentimes on wildlife management. We've decided that, no, this is a, a real issue of, of both moral and rational concern that we're taking to the state level. Uh, and so once we ultimately get our legislative victory and have coyote or even all animal killing contests banned, that's going to truly be the victory of, you know, humane management of wildlife. It's, we're not talking about restricting hunting rights because this has never been really about hunting. This is about just killing for the sake of killing. And we're also not restricting anybody's ability to shoot a coyote if if they feel they need to. That's going to still be legal. However, making it into a contest is what we find appalling. To find out more about Animal Protection of New Mexico and their work against coyote killing contests, visit APNM.org. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. I am Brad Gates, owner of Gates Wildlife Control. Do you have raccoons or squirrels living in your attic? Did you know that the hole in your roof is letting water in? Your insulation is being ruined and they could be chewing on your electrical wiring? Protect your biggest investment. We will come to your house and provide you with a no obligation free estimate. Please visit our website at gateswildlifecontrol.com or dial 416-750-9453. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride. Find out more at arrivealive.org. Bearsmart.com is the most comprehensive resource on the web for all things bear. At Bearsmart.com, we work hard to ensure people and bears safely and respectfully coexist. Join us as we give bears a voice at bearsmart.com. This is Defender Radio. A better world starts with education. Whether we're discussing wildlife coexistence, animal welfare, or urban planning, the more we know, the better we do. APFA firmly believes in this model, as do our partners at Coyote Watch Canada. Based in the Niagara region of Ontario, Coyote Watch Canada has implemented successful coexistence models and consulted on numerous others in several municipalities across the province. That success wouldn't be possible without a strong educational component. We're now being joined by Leslie Sampson, co-founder of Coyote Watch Canada, to hear more about their successes and the importance of education. Hey Leslie, can you tell us how Coyote Watch Canada started up? First of all, uh, the idea for Coyote Watch Canada was essentially um, initiated by not only myself, but a colleague and a friend, Jim Brown. So his um, background in viral studies and geography. So we realized that uh, there really weren't any uh, organizations locally within the province that really addressed the needs for communities that were perhaps faced 
with challenges, um, the issues that come up with wildlife, and we knew also that there really wasn't a broader representation of the coyote in terms of policy making within municipalities and also within the education uh, environment. So we we just felt very strongly about that and, and created Coyote Watch Canada. How did you combine your former profession as a teacher and your education and passion for nature? I mean, the, the most effective, uh, you know, curriculum-based classroom that you can ever experience as a learner is the, the natural classroom. So from the perspective of a teacher and working with uh, mainly at-risk students, we really felt strongly that we wanted to connect our students whether they're in the elementary level or secondary level with the outdoors. And so being immersed in nature is the most sentient classroom a a learner can have. And so those intricate, wondrous, that web of life beyond the prey and predator relationships, when you're looking at the natural world from an intrinsic point, so we all have our own personal reference point, and when you work outward from that, uh, looking at, uh, you know, immersing students in that whole environment of coyote living. How do coyotes live? What, what's their family like? A lot of uh, young learners and even, you know, adult learners really didn't appreciate or were aware of the fact that coyotes have families just like us. And you can identify those critical leaders in the family and the dynamics of uh, nurturing and caring for one another. So, you know, looking at um, incorporating that into the micro, right out to the macro holistic approach, that's where um, the development of our pause approach, the preservation, appreciation, wildlife safety, really fit well within the curriculum. Can you outline the in-school program you've developed? So basically, we start off very, uh, you know, generic in terms of connecting students with the environment. And this also is really deeply entrenched in wildlife safety. But if you don't know anything about the animals and the environment that you're going to interact with, it's pretty difficult to emphasize wildlife safety. And to know coyotes uh, is to appreciate them and then that's the step from that up towards celebrating these animals in our natural world you start looking at preservation and how can we coexist with these animals using compassion common sense and science so the wildlife safety component it's developing skill sets at a young age with the elementary school children that can be carried through up into high school and then post-secondary so we, we need to facilitate accurate information first and foremost to those little learners, those exciting, you know, really um, enthusiastic learners, and then helping them develop their own, uh, I guess, moral and environmental compass so they can make sound ecological decisions when they become of age. But even at a young age, I mean, uh, kids can make some really 
wonderfully, uh, deeply um, steadfast decision-making on, on what they're seeing in their natural world. And part of that is the field work or the discovery component. So, you know, even going out investigating and uh, experiencing, you know, trail systems, uh, wild spaces, that's a critical part of the pause approach. There is your it, there is your available information on safety protocol, recognizing what a coyote is, what to do with that. That incorporates in the high five for safety. So it's those standardized responses that allow an individual, regardless of the age, to actually think about their response, look at the environment, really gauge what the coyote is communicating to them and make that safe decision on getting out of the situation uh, as you know carefully as possible so the five the high five for safety is incorporated within the pause program and that includes your you know you you an encounter a coyote on a, on a trail system you stop you're looking at what's taking place you're standing still give that few seconds to assess what you should do next. Uh, you shout, you know, stomping your feet, waving your arms, being very larger than life, big, bad, and loud towards that coyote, and then slowly back away, never turning your back and running, and then sharing that experience. You know, but it, when, when students are taught from day one how to be prepared to interact in the natural world, they're going to have those skill sets that will prepare them for an encounter. So if you're out in the bush, you carry that shake can, you carry a whistle, you know the, the high fives for safety that you never run from any canine, whether it's a domestic and wild. And we really do encourage our young learners right up to the secondary level that irregardless, just don't ever run from a, a canine. You know, there could be that odd opportunity where a misidentification is made. So, you know, expecting a, a five or six-year-old to know if it's a coyote or a German shepherd, I don't think it's unrealistic to teach those skills, but I think we need to really teach to, to being able to respond effectively to wildlife. And, you know, that eco-intelligence that we encourage in our children that, that IQ, that eco-intelligence is carried through and they're confident, they're compassionate, and they're caring when they have that knowledge base and that experience, uh, you know, exploring in the natural world. How do the students typically respond when you go into a school? Well, students are amazing. It's an honor every time we're given or myself I'm given an opportunity to even spend an hour with uh, students I miss the classroom but uh, they're thrilled that you can see the passion and the interest in their little faces uh, they just you know get excited because you can see that you're fostering that fostering that independence uh, and if we do get an opportunity to go out into the you know the outdoors they're learning with their body awareness it's promoting multi-dimensional learning so you're they're using all their six senses and they are just excited 
and you can see that that real caring and kindness and curiosity in their responses to the questions and you know they're they're ready and willing to learn about coyotes and really you know not carry forward those myths and the fear-based um, ideals that are you know seem to be somewhat prominent at times in in our communities what kind of reaction do you get from the educators and parents at a school they're always so positive uh, a lot of times they're they're really blown away by the information that they gain because a lot of times um, they aren't even aware of the dynamics between coyotes and you know making those critical connections within the community and these amazing intelligent adaptable animals what are we doing what's our behavior that's attracting them to our properties to a particular location they are surprised at making those connections in terms of uh, you know the bird feeder overflowing connecting um, the, the prey predator relationship so the ecology that a parent and teacher carries away they're going to share that with other folks too so it really is contagious and we have always received positive feedback and they can't wait to have us back and so you know a lot of our bookings are word of mouth too so you know it's a hot it's a hot topic it's an exciting topic especially now with the coexistence programs that are up and running and um, you know we will do uh, direct hotspot curriculum based presentations so for example if a coyote is seen um, on a school property we first initially will do the investigation and then we offer that support within the classroom and with the administration in the school and the staff that's that's really instrumental in getting the accurate information out there providing the direct frontline support for the school itself and what's the safety protocol that's where the pause and high fives for safety comes in because something as simple as uh, air horn and uh, what students do instead of uh, panicking the teachers are well equipped in um, a safe response when they're in a coyote sighting and you know because coyotes obviously don't recognize political boundaries when a coyote passes through a uh, school property that in and of itself is not necessarily something to be uh, concerned about but if there's a you know a consistent visit several times within a two-week period know that there is a food source there and the students the teachers and administration are able to to make those fundamental connections with the attractants and why the wildlife is being seen to find out more about coyote watch canada visit coyotewatchcanada.com wild in the city with brad gates of gates wildlife control as always it's my pleasure to welcome brad gates of gates wildlife control for this segment Brad, we often talk about coexistence models being applicable in a variety of situations, regardless of the external environment. Do you think your methods of humane wildlife removal work as well in rural settings as they do in urban settings? Depending on the structure, um, I would say yes. The reason I say that a lot of rural situations have barns that animals simply 
could not be kept out of because of maybe the, the structure is, is failing somewhat or there's gaps and openings in, in certain um, areas of the structure. But certainly in the homes, in rural settings, uh, our methods of wildlife control will work as well. The stumbling block in a rural setting for wildlife is that their shelter is not as abundant in a urban setting. Um, a, a raccoon removed from a, an attic in one house probably has, you know, a hundred other opportunities in the neighborhood to um, take up residence and, and create a den site in, in another home not too far off. In a rural setting, that may not be the case. So even though they, they probably can rely on both um, forested environments as well as um, structured environments such as a house, the, the key in, in solving rural wildlife problems lies in doing extensive animal proofing because an animal that's evicted from a house where there aren't a lot of other opportunities for um, den sites, they're going to be more driven to get back into that house. And so they're going to look to the weaknesses that exist, whether it be the roof fence, an uncapped chimney. They're not going to give up as easily as they do in an urban environment. So maybe a bit more money would need to be spent uh, in a rural uh, home situation to 100% guarantee that we would lock the animals out, whereas uh, in an urban situation, generally dealing with sometimes um, the minimal and, and the obvious would, uh, would solve the problem. To get in touch with Gates Wildlife Control for wildlife proofing your home or finding humane solutions to remove wildlife, visit GatesWildlifeControl.com. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. Every year, dogs, cats, endangered species, and even people are caught in cruel leg hold, conibear, and other body gripping traps across Canada. Who will speak out for these innocent victims of an outdated industry? We will. I'm Leslie Fox, Executive Director of the Association for the Protection of Furbearing Animals. With your support, we can bring an end to the needless and painful deaths of hundreds of thousands of animals. Become a member today at FurBearerDefenders.com to find out how you can give hope for our furbearing friends. Have you ever heard a coyote sing? Did you know that coyotes are also called North America song dogs? They communicate through unique howls, yips, and barks. At Coyote Watch Canada, we're committed to fostering peaceful coexistence for communities and their wildlife neighbors by building compassionate wildlife communities one community at a time. Please visit us at coyotewatchcanada.com for more information and tips about this amazing keystone species. This is Defender Radio. It's a sound all of our listeners know and love. Coyotes communicating. But what are they saying? To whom are they saying it? And does it even matter if we ever know? Professor Sarah Waller at the University of Montana is looking to find answers to these questions and more. 
She joins us now to speak about her work studying coyote vocalizations. Your academic background is in philosophy. How did you go from that to focusing on wildlife, and in particular, coyotes? That's right, that's right. And of course, I think philosophy is the mother discipline. So really, philosophers, we're secretly interested in everything. Um, But yeah, I started out in philosophy. I was really interested in language and mind. How does language get its meaning? How do minds work? And this can be as simple as when I meet someone and that person's mind works very differently from my own, or they say something surprising and different. Um, You know, how are we different? How do we understand the world differently? And then, of course, that moves on to animals, especially animals that are very different from us. So this started with dolphins. You know, you've got a creature that's very social the way we are, very cooperative the way we are, and very vocal, but they don't have hands. They live in the ocean, right? Lots and lots of different challenges. Um, So I was interested in that for a while and still am. We still collect data there every spring. Um, And when I moved into Montana, I just realized that social predators are everywhere, land and sea. And so let's get into this wolf and coyote mix, and especially coyotes, because they're they're considered to be a little bit more varmints. There's a lot of prejudice against coyotes, and it would be nice if we could understand more about them and learn how their minds work, maybe communicate with them. How did you develop the interest in coyote vocalizations then? Oh, so, well, I had been, um, let, let me give you a little bit more of a background. So I had been working on this very dry dissertation on, like, symbolic semantics. And I think when I graduated, I just wanted to go outside. I think I'd have my nose in a book for three years. And I wanted to go out, and so there was a dolphin internship at SDSU, and I went and did that, and realized that really I was just doing my dissertation, but in an applied fashion. So then Montana became like, oh, you know, now that I'm here in the mountains, I have all these terrestrial critters, and really, I just, I just started. I had been working with the dolphins already, and coyotes were making all these interesting sounds. I've been working with the Cornell uh, Macaulay Library of Natural Sound, and they said that coyotes were one of the most difficult creatures to record. There is always something wrong with a coyote recording. There's background noise, there are dogs barking, they're far away, they're notoriously hard to capture, so we have very little record of what coyotes have sounded like, do sound like across the United States. So I, I kind of thought, oh, that's cool, I like those guys anyway. Let's see if I can go and get some good recordings. Have you any results on this work yet? Yeah, let let me try to give you two answers. Um, One is for the science folks and remembering that I'm always a philosopher. So kind of my scientific results are a little bit primitive. I'm always collaborating with scientists. But what we found is that they vocalize in suburban areas. They communicate with each other a lot and reliably. So we think that what's going on is that they're using human highways, byways, shelters, and so on in relatively safe places. Nobody in the suburbs probably is going to go call animal control. But we also know that they're in our cities. They, they will walk right down Main Street in very populated areas. And when they do that, when they're raiding your garbage, they don't say a word. When they're on the golf course and in the country club, they, they don't uh, vocalize at all. So there's this 
very interesting silence when they are urban. So that's my really statistically robust result. Um, my my uh, more nebulous results are about the nature of meaning, and really we're still working on and thinking about they make these incredible harmonic sounds when they vocalize. And what, what do harmonics have to do with meaning? Um, one of the most exciting moments of my life is when I was giving a presentation on this stuff and a professional linguist was in the audience, someone who'd worked with human language. And I had different animal vocalizations up on the screen and I was going to play them all. And he pointed to the third one and he said, oh, that's a human. That's a human and they're making a vowel sound. And I turned around and I said, that's a coyote. And he just went, wow. So suddenly we have these really interesting structural similarities and it just raises a lot of questions about meaning and language and how humans as social predators vocalize and communicate with one another and how that might be very close to what coyotes do. I read an article in which it was theorized that you may be able to use your work to help landowners coexist with coyotes. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, yes. Um, one of the interesting things about my research is that, you know, I very seldom have to get research permissions to go and work with the animals because they're often animals that nobody really cares about. So coyotes in Montana were probably just as likely to shoot them as to do anything else because they are very difficult. They present a lot of challenges to ranchers and they, they sure do want to eat your chicken um, and maybe more than that. So what do we do that isn't shooting them? Well, we know that they communicate with each other and we have some reason to believe that at least some of these vocal communications are territory calls. If that's the case and we can get good high quality recordings of territory calls, we can just run playbacks around ranches and they'll stay away because they hear that that's someone else's territory so they're not going to come. And then we don't have to shoot anyone. Everyone can peacefully coexist. That is, of course, the ideal, but that's one way that this could be applied. You've received some funding that's quite interesting. Why don't you explain how there may be a connection between your work with coyotes and our communication with extraterrestrial life? I'm very interested in astrobiology. I was uh, hired by NASA through the Montana State University um, Astrobiogeocatalysis Research Center a couple of years ago to put together a course on philosophy of astrobiology. And a lot of that course centers on what, what is the SETI program, right, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. How would we know if something is intelligent anyway, and then how would we talk to it? Well, we have enough trouble talking to each other and agreeing with each other as human beings, but when you start to think about life in the universe and that that life would probably be shaped and sculpted by evolutionary forces much as it has been on Earth, then we might get a really good clue as to what creatures on other worlds might look like, sound like, act like by looking at the diversity of species on our own planet. Uh, so we do have a lot of vocaliz uh, yeah, vocalization and communication on our planet. It takes all sorts of different forms in human language. You get these coyotes with their amazing harmonics. You have dolphins with these very interesting, very complicated burst pulses. And maybe these vocalizations will let us know how other life forms that are not like us communicate with each other.
I guess my final question, and the one that may be most appealing to you as a philosopher, is why does it matter if we know what coyotes are saying? Well, it could lead to a world where we cooperate more clearly and easily with other species, right? Rather than having this battle for territory, maybe we can coexist peacefully. This could lead to better environmental management, as well as a better understanding of ourselves, right? Human beings misunderstand one another all the time. It leads to wars and violence. So if we practice understanding creatures much different from ourselves and learn to get along with them better, maybe we can learn to get along with each other better. To find out more about Professor Waller's work, check the link on this week's Defender Radio blog posting. That's our show for this week, folks. I'd like to thank all of our guests this week and send out a special thank you to the volunteers who kept us safe, well-fed, and warm during our time in Cornwall. On behalf of APA and Defender Radio, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.